0: When you put a group of 20-something unmarried young guys in a house, it's a recipe for great stories. I uh, I lived with a group of guys my final summer before I got married, and one of those guys is this guy right here. His name is Jeff, and we look very put together. I, I'm surprised how, um, you know— we, I, I look a little bit young to myself in there, but considering where we started as friends, I look fairly mature in that picture. Um, but, but Jeff and I lived together uh, this one particular summer, and we had a lot of fun uh, before I got married. And one of the things that we did that summer is we served with our church youth group by going to camp. Now, the build at the camp is really important. Not only do you need lots of different clothes for lots of different activities, but you also need some supplies, you know, to pull pranks, to make sure you can eat well when the camp food is bad. And so right before we left to go to this camp, we realized that we were short on some supplies. So Jeff and I were at uh, the house we were we were living at. The guy who owned it actually worked at our church. So he was there kind of putting together some final preparations. And so we're walking out the door, and um, and I thought I had all of my stuff in my pockets. And so I go out the door first, and and Jeff, you know, pulls the door behind him. Well, well he just decided that he was going to do that little thing. I'm not sure what your door lock is at home. Sometimes you can, like, turn the little knob and just pop the lock and pull the door closed. Well, he did that. So he walks out. i I got to pull my keys out to lock the door. And I realize, no, no keys. So so I went to go, you know, okay, the door is not locked. No big deal. And I go, it's locked. I said, did you lock the door? And he's like, yeah. I said, why'd you do that? He said, I don't know. I thought we were leaving. Don't you have your keys? And I said, no, I don't have my keys. Do you have your keys? No, I don't have my keys. And it's, it's about 105 outside on this warm Phoenix afternoon. We don't have any keys. But luckily, we had our phones. And so we call our our roommate, who's about 15 minutes away, said, Hey, is there somebody there with you who can bring us a key to get in? Because it's kind of hot out here and we'd like to go get our stuff. So he sends somebody, said, Hey, it's about 20 minutes. So we're waiting. And then Jeff goes, I have an idea. And Jeff's idea was that we knew that our roommate had a window air conditioning unit. Okay, you guys know where the story's going. And, and so jeff 's idea and, I, and it wasn 't like it wasn 't like i didn't go along with it. I just want to for the record say that it was jeff 's idea to start so jeff 's idea is that we can just pull the window unit out, go through the window, and then open the front door Now, now neither one of us was really experienced with window air conditioning units uh, as the next part of the story will show and so we basically just pull the window unit out and and then he dives through the window into the room, and so we get in the house, and so we call the person bringing us the keys, and we say, hey, don't worry about it. Turn around. We broke in. It's just fine. So by the time we kind of get, you know, the keys and get ready to go, we realize, we're realizing that, that we didn't break into the house. We actually broke the air conditioner. We broke the whole window. And so we find a way to kind of secure the house. And right as we're doing that, our phone rings, and it's our roommate. And, and, he, and he doesn't say hello. doesn't say hi. He just says, define break in. And we tell him, and he hangs up on us, and uh, so we're like, well, this is not going to be good, so let's go and get our stuff before he comes back, that way we can actually get back in the house. So we come back, and we're waiting for him, and he gets home, and he, like, just completely gives us the the silent treatment. Uh, And so we we paid for the the window and the air conditioning unit, and then we paid the price uh, relationally because we became an illustration in one of his sermons at the student camp, and it was just one of those face palm moments. Like, looking back, I was like, why didn't we just wait 15 minutes? I mean, the keys were coming. You know, why, why did we do that? And, and it's because we had an idea. But here's the problem. We had an idea, but we didn't have a plan. And there's a big difference between having an idea and having a well-thought-out plan. There's a difference between wanting to do something and actually being ready To do it. Today, we're going to talk about a man who actually had a plan, not just an idea, and the difference that God made through him. As we showed in the video earlier, we're in a series. This is week two, and the series is called Rebuilding because. Honestly, we're, we're kind of all rebuilding. We're rebuilding our relationships, and we're rebuilding our lives. For some of us, we're, we're rebuilding our careers, and we're rebuilding plans. As a church, we're rebuilding who it is that we actually are, because some people have gone, and some people have come, and some places where people serve, now we're trying to refill those things. And in the midst of the Bible, there's a book called Nehemiah, and and Nehemiah was leading a massive rebuilding project, but he wasn't just Rebuilding walls, he was helping people reclaim their hope, and that's what our hope is over these few weeks. It isn't just that we learned from Nehemiah some tips and some tricks and some best practices about how to build, but that in our hearts, in the places where the last year has broken down hope has led us down the path of disappointment, maybe even despair that in addition to rebuilding our lives. God would enable us to reclaim the hope that we have in Him. So, if you got a copy of the notes when you walked in, I'd encourage you to fill in the blanks on our big idea this morning, which is this The best plans are developed with wisdom and executed with courage. The best plans, not just ideas like me and Jeff had, the best plans are developed with wisdom and then when they're executed, they're executed. With courage. If you're watching at home, if you're here in the room and have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on and go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you have a physical one, open it up to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms, go towards the front, and a few books before Psalms, you'll find the book of Nehemiah. It's nestled between two other books of history around that same time period, Ezra and Esther. And before we go any farther, I need to make a confession. I said something wrong last week. And I know in our world, people don't admit mistakes, but part of you trusting me is when I say something wrong, I admit it. So last Sunday, I was talking about some context for Nehemiah, and I said that the historical order of these books was Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, like in reverse order of the Bible. That actually isn't true. I read that somewhere and I just believed it because that's what happens sometimes. If you trust the source, you believe it. Well, this week as I was reading, I found somebody that contradicted that. And so I went and did my homework because I was like, oh, my gosh, did I say something wrong? And I did. The actual historical order is Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. So you go, Scott, why isn't isn't, that a big deal? Well, it is to me, because I want to always be trustworthy. So with that out of the way, I wanted to just make sure that you had that correction. Today, as we dive into Nehemiah 2, we're going to look at three principles for aspiring rebuilders. So if you're looking to rebuild something in your life, these are three principles you need to know as you make your plan. Now, this is a bit of a a chunk of a passage, so we're going to read it in pieces today and and not in one big chunk. Beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, remember that, we'll come back to that, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear, and I replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens. The the first principle for aspiring rebuilders is this, that God's job is creating opportunities our job is becoming ready. God is the one who orchestrates things beyond our comprehension, beyond our recognition in ways that we can't see. God is constantly involved in creating opportunities. So we can't actually manifest an opportunity. Contrary, to some popular opinion that says you can manifest whatever you want by declaring it or thinking it or you know, saying it over and over again, God's the one who creates opportunities, but it's our job to become ready. And as we open up Nehemiah 2, what we see is that Nehemiah, the guy whose story we're looking at, Nehemiah is incredibly sad. If you have your Bible open, it says that, that not only was this the first time he had been sad in a long time, but he'd never been sad in the king's presence. He'd always been somebody who was was happy and joy-filled. It's that person in the office or the person in your life who just seems to always have a, a good countenance, a good attitude, somebody who's just resilient and happy. And when that person is is sour, when that person is down, you notice it. And that's what the king does. The king notices: hey, what's going on? You seem to be not yourself. And you might say, well, it's just that one day where that happy person is now sad. No, 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 no. This is a much bigger deal. If you were here last week, we described what Nehemiah's job is. And Nehemiah's job is that he's the cupbearer to the king. He's responsible for the food and the drink that goes before the king to make sure that the king is not poisoned because that had happened before in Persia. Kings had been assassinated and poisoned and murdered. So Nehemiah's job is to make make sure that doesn't happen. And so, when the king sees the person who's responsible for making sure that nobody poisons him acting in a way he's never acted before, in the king's head it's like, Danger, 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 Will Robinson. We have a problem. And so he turns to Nehemiah and he says, What is this? What's going on with you? Because you remember what it says right there in the beginning of the chapter that he just had his wine? So this is a really dangerous moment for for Nehemiah, you know. He says that he's very afraid because he knows that this king is not necessarily uh, not paranoid. This king is also a fairly violent guy. This king that Nehemiah is serving got to be king because he murdered his brother. And then once he became king, he murdered the guy who murdered his dad who helped his brother become king. It's a happy family here. And so when this is all going on and the king's getting nervous and Nehemiah is acting weird, it's a dangerous situation. And what Nehemiah does is, is that he's ready for this moment and how he gives his answer and what he does. If you see right there in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, it says that he, Immediately, he prays to the God of the heavens. And this is what Nehemiah does over and over again. We saw this last week that, that Nehemiah, when he heard the state of the walls in Jerusalem, he grieved and he wept and he fasted and he prayed. I said last week that in the 13 chapters of Nehemiah, we see on nine different occasions that Nehemiah turns to God in prayer. That one of these seasons is an extended season of prayer. This prayer right here is, it's kind of like texting a prayer, you know? You ever have a, a moment, something happens in life, and you don't have time to tell somebody what's going on, you just have a text and say, pray for me, I'll explain later. I had a meeting a couple weeks ago, and I texted a friend, hey, I can't, I can't tell you what's going on, I just need you to know something is happening, will you pray for me? And I knew that person didn't need an explanation, and they just said, yeah, I will, I'm with you. See, see what we see in the story of Nehemiah here is that our relationship to prayer often reveals our level of dependence on God. You might say, well, I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. Uh, I'm here at church or I'm watching at home. Uh, I have a Bible. I pray. Yeah, but, but, but how much on a daily basis do you actually depend on
1: God? Not you know about him. Not
0: you talk to him when it's, Really, a big deal, but what percentage of your life on a day to day basis is lived in active, conscious dependence on God? And not just when things are going bad. You might say, Yeah, I'm depending on God right now, Scott. I'm waiting for a call from the doctor on Monday. I don't know what it's going to be. I'm talking about when everything is awesome. Like a Lego movie, you know, everything is awesome. In those moments, How dependent are you on God? And what we see with Nehemiah here is that his prayer life reveals just how dependent he is on God. And what Nehemiah did is that not only was he prayerful in getting ready, he prepared. He prepared. He he knew what he was going to say to the king when this moment came because he'd been thinking about it, he'd been working on it. We see in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. That it mentions that during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, this this book opens with the definition that, that Kislev is the moment where the book starts. But this conversation we just read in Nehemiah 2, it's in the month of Nisan, just four months later. And during this four months, what what Nehemiah has been doing is he's been preparing for this conversation. He's been waiting for this opportunity. At the end of Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah's prayer is, God, God, speak in my life. Show me the moment. Work on my behalf so that when I stand before the king, I'm ready. And over these four months, Nehemiah is getting ready for this conversation. He's not only praying to God, but he's doing the work so that when the opportunity comes, he is ready to seize it. Sometimes it's hard to pray and prepare when the opportunity we want isn't manifesting. Sometimes it's hard to keep praying when we're not getting the answers we want. Sometimes it's hard to keep planning when it feels like that opportunity is never going to show up. And that's where it takes perseverance. I'm so uh, admiring uh, of Nehemiah because he goes after it in a time and a place that nobody would see. You know, if I'm if I'm preparing, I can just do, pull my phone out and go, "Hey guys, I'm working really hard today on this project." You know, you can see all my stuff laid out here. Like I am, I am putting the work in. I can show the world my my preparation, my my
1: perseverance. But in his world, nobody saw it. But God. God saw it. God saw the work he was
0: putting in. God heard the prayers that he was praying. And some of us give up on prayer because God doesn't give us the answers we want or at the time that we want. Some of us don't see the opportunity that God's been preparing for us because we give up along the way. And that's why if I was to put this readiness that's our responsibility into a math equation, I would say readiness equals prayer plus preparation plus perseverance. You want to be ready to seize the opportunity God is going to put in your life to rebuild what has been broken? Then it's incumbent upon me, it's incumbent upon you to pray, to prepare, and to persevere knowing that God is at work in ways that we often do not see. And it's his job to create the opportunity, and it's our job to be ready. And many times we don't see the opportunity because we haven't put in the work. And if I can push you for a little bit, sometimes then we get jealous of other people's opportunities because they planned and they prepared and they persevered and they prayed in ways we did not. There's times in my life where I get jealous, I get envious, I I get comparison syndrome over where I am and where somebody else is, what I'm experiencing and what they're experiencing. And then what I come to discover was, oh, they put the work in that I procrastinated. They persevered where I gave up. They kept praying where I got frustrated with God that he wasn't doing what I wanted when I and if God's responsibility is opportunity and our responsibility is getting ready, it's being attentive in these areas. Let's look at a passage continuing. We'll repeat a little bit of this. When the king asked me, what is your request? Then Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heavens. That's the text message prayer. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah And to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? Translation, how long am I not going to have your service? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. Pay attention to what comes next. Nehemiah says, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates, so they may grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And and let me have a letter written to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortresses, the city wall, and the home where I will live. And the king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and the cavalry with me. Now when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. We'll talk about those guys later on in this series. The second principle for aspiring rebuilders is this. When a God-given opportunity collides with our readiness courage and wisdom will be required when that opportunity we've been praying for and preparing for and persevering for when that arrives and we're ready in that moment it's going to demand wisdom and courage wisdom and courage is the thing that i've i've prayed for the most since i learned the word covid19 Because I didn't know how to lead through this. I didn't have a class on this in seminary. I, I didn't have a book to read about this. And it takes courage to lead in a time where everybody has an opinion about what you should be doing. And none of those opinions line up with each other. And what Nehemiah does that I think is so wise is that he actually understands the problem he's trying to solve. Charles Kettering famously said, a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. See, sometimes the the challenge with us is that we're actually not understanding the problem and we're solving the wrong problem. If you have your Bible open still, I want you to look back there in, in Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6, and I want you to look for a word. Look for the word Jerusalem. It's not there. That's the city he's going to rebuild, right? Those are the walls that are broken, right? That's the place that he's heartbroken over in verse, chapter one, verses one through four, that's broken down. Why does he not say the word Jerusalem? Because Nehemiah's smart. He prepared and planned for this moment. And he knew that the word Jerusalem was a trigger word. See, back in the book of Ezra, A Persian king, and different people have different views on this. Some people think it was this actual king, and some think it was his his father or relative. In the book of Ezra, the walls of Jerusalem begin to be rebuilt. And then something amazing happens in Ezra 4. This is the writing of that king. It was discovered that this city, Jerusalem, has had uprising against kings since ancient times, and there have been rebellions and revolts in it. Powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem and exercised authority over the whole region west of the Euphrates River. Tribute and duty and land tax were paid to them. Therefore, this is the king's word, issue an order for these men in Jerusalem to stop so that this city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me. The reason that the walls remain unbuilt is the king of Persia said, stop. And now Nehemiah is standing in front of another king of Persia, possibly the same king, saying, hey, remember that project that you stopped? I want to restart it. And you can imagine that if he used the word Jerusalem, it might have triggered something in this king to think about this decree and this decision. And so Nehemiah is so wise, what he does is he studies the king and he appeals to the king's values. If you were looking around in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 2, you didn't see that word, but what you saw is that Nehemiah said, why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in See, for Persian kings, where you were buried was incredibly important. As soon as a Persian king became king, he would begin working on his mausoleum, his burial grounds. And sometimes decades worth of work would go into the place where a Persian king would be buried. Artisans, craftsmen would dedicate a large number of hours to preparing this space. And so what Nehemiah does is he appeals to the king, who's probably already working on where he will be buried, and who's taking care of where his ancestors are buried, even if he murdered them. We'll leave that out for a moment. He cares about that, and so Nehemiah says, "This is why I'm sad, because the place where my ancestors are buried is in ruins," and it moves the heart of the king, and he then becomes empathetic and caring about Nehemiah's situation. What Nehemiah does here, I think, can only be summed up in the word shrewd. Now, shrewd is not typically a word that we like to be described as. Man, he's a shrewd dude. You're like, ooh, I'm not sure that's a compliment. But but it's actually a part of the teachings of Jesus. And in Matthew 10, Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. It's a passage that I think we kind of always wrestle with. Like, I'm supposed to be shrewd? I thought that was kind of manipulative or backstabbing. But in the the dictionary, shrewd is an adjective that means having or showing sharp powers of judgment, astute. We should be shrewd. We should understand the moment that we're in and understand the people that we're speaking to. And we should study them and care about them and learn about them so that we discover how do we accomplish what God wants to accomplish and find a way for them to work with us on that. I know this doesn't make sense in our toxic, polarized world where there's good guys and bad guys and all of us are, of course, the good guys. But it's possible here for a worshiper of God and a murderous, baal, false-worshipping king to discover that they want the same thing. And that happens because Nehemiah is shrewd. He's like the men of Issachar, described in First Chronicles 12. From the Issacharites who understood the times and who knew what Israel should do. See, what Nehemiah does is that he has the wisdom to go back and read what happened to discover what this king values and then to prayerfully and intentionally prepare a plan to go into this king. Nehemiah is so wise. But he's also gutsy. I mean, he gets what he wants. The king says, how long are you going to be gone? When are you coming back? He tells him, okay, you can go. And Nehemiah goes, oh, I have something else. He says, can you send me a a letter that goes before me to make sure that nobody kills me along the way? Remember last week, it's 900 miles from Susa, Jerusalem, through enemy territory. Can you send me letters so that those people know that if they mess with me, they've got to deal with you? King says, okay. Oh, and one more thing. He says, can I have a letter written to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that I can get all the timber I need? Basically, he's saying, king, can I go? And by the way, can you pay for my protection? Oh, and by the way, can you actually pay for this wall to be rebuilt too? I mean, it's bold. It's like that scene in Dodgeball, you know, where the guy says it's a bold strategy, Cotton. You know, like it's it's bold. Nehemiah's bold. He's like the if you, you know, give a mouse a cookie, he'll ask for a glass of milk. I mean, he's just he's asking and asking and asking and asking. He's courageous. And yet, what does the passage say in the beginning? He's very afraid. And this is where we've got to get something clear. Courage and fear can coexist in our hearts. They do all the time. Famously, Mark Twain said, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, and not absence of fear. Some of us right now, we're afraid of the opportunity God has put in front of us. And here's the thing. God can instill courage in your heart and leave the fear. Almost every step I've taken in my life that has moved me into any new opportunity, I have felt scared and needed to be courageous at the exact same time. And so if you say, I'll follow God, I'll step into that opportunity when I'm no longer afraid, you will miss that opportunity. Because opportunities are like the milk in your fridge. They have an expiration date. And you have to seize that opportunity, maybe the opportunity of a lifetime, within the lifetime of that opportunity. And what Nehemiah does is he steps forward, fearful and afraid, but he steps forward with courage. And what happens? It says, the king granted my request, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. What does Nehemiah do? The king grabbed my request. You know what? That's because I'm awesome. I worked hard. I studied the king. I was bold. No. For the gracious hand of my God was on me. We see in Nehemiah's life that prayer before leads to worship after. If, if we pray on our way into an opportunity, the likelihood is that we're going to worship God on the backside. But if the opportunity comes because of our own ingenuity and our own resourcefulness, and we're the reason the opportunity is there, I can tell you the likelihood on the back end is that we're not going to deflect the worship and praise to God. We're going to absorb it for ourselves. That's why we have to be so intentional to pray at the beginning. We said last week, prayer isn't the only thing we do, but it is the first thing we do. So that the last thing we do on the other side is complete the circle and take the worship back to him. Let's finish up the story today in Nehemiah 2. After I, Nehemiah, arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night, took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate towards the serpent's well and the dung gate. I'm thinking you can do the math on what happened at that gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by the way of the valley, and I inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, come. Let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me, what the king had said to me, and they said, let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Third and final principle, fools rush in. The wise slow down before they speed up. We live at a time where it is all about go, go, go,
1: rush, 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 fast, fast, fast.
0: And yet, there is wisdom in slowing down. We're we're not in football season right now, but we're getting ready for the draft. And they talk about all of these future NFL quarterbacks saying, is the game going to be too fast for them? Some of the greats, including one who I loathe named Tom Brady, he will say that the game is slow to him. What that means is that he's learned over time to slow down his heart rate and his brain so he can see clearly. And, and what happens when we're in the midst of an opportunity we've been praying for and preplan- planning for and preparing for is that so often we start rushing and rushing and rushing and when that happens, we miss things. In, in Nehemiah 2.11, what it says is that After I had been in Jerusalem for three days, I went out.
1: What would happen in those three days he's in Jerusalem? A, we don't know. B, most people believe he did nothing.
0: He rested. He had just traveled 900 miles on the back of a donkey think he'd earned a couple days to
1: catch his breath. And for you, and for me, as we prepare to rebuild, I just want to ask you a question. How tired are you? How exhausted are you? When's the last time you truly rested? I say, Scott, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. I can't rest right now. There's too much going on. You sound like me. And let me tell you what people have been telling me. You are not the linchpin to the kingdom of God.
0: Man, if if you taking a break means that the kingdom of God is gonna fall apart, wow, you should be the one up here. Like, I mean, we should just be
1: at your feet. For some of us, we need to follow Nehemiah's example and rest and slow down
0: before we begin this great work. Some of us, we need to follow his example of restraint. What Nehemiah says is that I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. and there was reasons why that is the case. This guy, Sandball and Tobiah, they had their own crew in the city who was going to conspire against Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that there were loose lips that could sink ships. And sometimes it's good to show restraint and not announce to the world what you're thinking about doing before you actually do it. You know, some things can actually be happening without being posts on social media. And so what Nehemiah does is he shows restraint. And then what he does is he begins making plans. He takes that donkey that now has had a couple days break. He goes out at night with, with torches. And quietly and silently, he sees it for himself. He doesn't rely on what other people have told him. He goes and sees it for himself. And he begins to plan on his own. And, and what comes from this is an amazing process that we see at the end of Nehemiah 2 here. And I could I could deliver a whole sermon on this. these next five things. The first thing he does is he introduces the problem. He says the walls are broken, the gates are broken down, and we're vulnerable. See, here's the thing. Not everybody thinks the same thing is a problem. And unless everybody agrees it's a problem, nothing's going to change. So he has to get everyone on the same page that, guys, we have a problem. Do you agree we have a problem? I think we have a problem. Do you think we have a problem? And until we all say yes, we can't go any farther. The next thing he does is he says, and it's bad.
1: He gets them to feel the pain.
0: He describes the state of the city and of their hopes. There's that old quote that says that people don't change until the pain of staying where they are is greater than the pain of changing. And some of you right now, you've gotten so used to the broken down walls in your lives, you don't even feel the pain anymore. You're used to the the dysfunction in the relationship. You're used to having to manage around things. You're used to the state of things that it isn't painful for you anymore. And you're not going to rebuild anything until you recognize it's a problem, until you feel the pain again. And the pain might be somebody else coming in your life going, this is weird. This is bad. Why do you live like this? And at first you're embarrassed, but then you go, oh, I had gotten so used to it that I called what was bad good. Or what was broken normal. Then he says, guys, what would happen if we rebuilt the walls? What would happen if together we rebuilt the walls, we rebuilt the gates, and God did this amazing thing in our midst? He helped them to dream again. Some of us over the last year, what's happened is that we've stopped dreaming. And we've lowered our
1: hopes. Then they commit to the plan. This is how we're going to do this, and we're going to do this together. And then he begins to help them celebrate early wins. He says, hey, this is what happened with the king. God is already moving on our behalf. And this is where it all begins. This is where the miracle that we'll talk about next week begins. Some of you, you need to figure out what the problem is. Some of you, you need to feel the pain. Some of us, we need to start dreaming again. Others of us, we need to start committing to a plan. And some of us, we need to celebrate that God's at work in ways we don't see. Because the best plans are developed with wisdom and they're executed with courage. If you're following along
0: in your notes, there's, there's some next steps on the back I want to walk you through.
1: Here's the first one.
0: I want to encourage you to identify your greatest readiness roadblock. What's keeping you from being ready? If the opportunity you've been praying for showed up today, would you be ready? And if it if it showed up today and you're not ready, is it because you've not been attentive in prayer? Is it because you've not been faithful in preparation? And is it because you've been waning in your perseverance? Maybe it's something else.
1: Maybe it's the pain that just has overwhelmed you. Or you stopped dreaming.
0: But what's getting in the way? Number two, pray daily for wisdom and courage. I mentioned this earlier. This is what I've prayed for almost every day for the last year. God, give me wisdom and courage. Help me to know what to do. And then once I know that, help me to have the courage to do it because not everybody's going to like me.
1: Help me to have the courage. Slow down now in order to speed up later. God is never in a hurry never in a hurry. We're always in a hurry, but God's never in a hurry. So maybe it's slowing down now so that you can speed up later.
0: And then finally, number four, put your hope in Jesus, the true and better Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah is a great guy. He does these amazing things, and he's a hero of the faith. He's he's somebody, I think, that's worthy of our admiration but he's not our savior. And what we see in this story is that Nehemiah does some things, but Jesus completes them. You know, Nehemiah leaves the throne room in Susa. He travels 900 miles to we rode the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus was in a throne room, and he left it in heaven to come and rebuild everything on earth that had been Nehemiah weeps when he hears about the state of Jerusalem. Jesus, when he rode that donkey up to Jerusalem the final time, he wept over Jerusalem. Because he knew that what he wanted to do for the city, the city wouldn't let him do. He knew they crucified him. Nehemiah rides a donkey for 900 miles into Jerusalem as the rebuilder. Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem as the king.
1: Thank you. And Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of a city. And what Jesus wants to do in our lives is he wants to rebuild us. He wants to
0: rebuild our church. He wants to rebuild our hopes. He wants to rebuild our lives. And so I'd encourage you, we're talking about Nehemiah in the city, but don't put your hope in Nehemiah. Put your hope in Jesus, believing that what he has done in the past, he can do again. Would you stand with me this morning? Jesus, we pray that all the places our lives are broken and in need, that you'd be at work. You are our true and better Nehemiah. And we pray that you would do again what you did then rebuild and restore. In your name we pray, Jesus.